0: Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to L.A. Talk Radio. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. Project G- Gemini was NASA's second human spaceflight program. It was a United States government civilian space program started in 1961 and concluded in 1966. Project Gemini was conducted between Projects Mercury and Apollo. The Gemini spacecraft carried a two-astronaut crew. Ten crews flew low-Earth orbit missions between 1965 and 1966. It put the United States in the lead during the Cold War space race with the Soviet Union. Its objective was to develop space travel techniques to support Apollo's mission to land astronauts on the moon. Gemini achieved missions long enough for a trip to the moon and back, perfected working outside the spacecraft with extravehicular activity or EVAs, and pioneered the orbital maneuvers necessary to achieve rendezvous and docking. With these new techniques proven in Gemini, Apollo could pursue its prime mission without doing these fundamental exploratory operations. All Gemini flights were launched from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station Launch Complex 19 in Florida. Its launch vehicle was the Gemini Titan II, a Modified Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, or ICBM. Project Gemini was the first program to use Houston as the mission control for its flights. The astronaut corps that supported Project Gemini included the Mercury 7, the new 9, and the 1963 astronaut class. During the program, three astronauts died in air crashes during training, including the prime crew for Gemini 9. This mission was performed by the backup crew the only time that has ever happened in NASA's history. Gemini was robust enough that the United States Air Force planned to use it for the Manned Orbital Laboratory, or MOL, program, which was later canceled. Gemini's chief designer, Jim Chamberlain, also made detailed plans for the cislunar and lunar landing missions in late 1961. He believed Gemini could perform lunar operations before Project Apollo and cost less. NASA's administration did not approve those plans. In 1969, McDonnell Douglas proposed a big Gemini that it could be used to shuttle up to 12 astronauts to the planned space station in the Apollo Applications Project, or AAP. The only Apollo Applications Project funded was Skylab, which used existing spacecraft and hardware, thereby eliminating the need for the Big Gemini. After the existing Apollo program was chartered by President John F. Kennedy on May 25, 1961, to land men on the moon, it became evident to NASA officials that a follow-up to the Mercury program was required to develop certain spaceflight capabilities in support of Apollo. Specifically, Jim Chamberlain, the head of engineering at Space Task Group, was already assigned to start working on a bridge program between Mercury and Apollo in February 1961. He presented two initial versions of Gemini at a NASA retreat at Wallops Island in March 1961. Scale models of Mercury Mark II were shown in July 1961 at McDonald Aircraft Corporation offices in St. Louis. NASA approved Project Gemini on December 7, 1961. The McDonnell Corporation was contracted to build it on December 22, 1961. When it was publicly announced on January 3, 1962, it was formally rechristened Project Gemini. Gemini in Latin means twins or double, which reflected that the spacecraft would hold two astronauts. Gemini is also the name of the third constellation of the Zodiac and its twin star Castor and Pollux. The major objectives of Project Gemini were To demonstrate endurance of humans and equipment to spaceflight for extended period, at least eight days required for a moon landing, to a maximum of two weeks. To effect rendezvous and docking with another vehicle, and to maneuver the combined spacecraft using the propulsion system of the target vehicle. to demonstrate extra-vehicle activity, or EVAs, also known as spacewalks, outside the protection of the spacecraft, and to evaluate the astronauts' ability to perform tasks there, to perfect techniques of atmospheric reentry and touchdown at a pre-selected location on land. The two-crew member-carrying Gemini capsule was designed by a Canadian, Jim Chamberlain. He was previously the chief of aerodynamics on Avro's Canada's Avro-Aero fighter-interceptor program. Chamberlain joined NASA along with 25 senior Avro engineers. After cancellation of the Aero program, and became head of the U.S. Space Task Group's engineering division in charge of Gemini. The prime contractor was McDonnell Aircraft Corporation, which was also the prime contractor for the Project Mercury capsule. In addition, astronaut Gus Grissom was heavily involved in the development and design Of the Gemini spacecraft. The other Mercury astronauts dubbed the Gemini spacecraft the Gusmobile. (laughs) Grissom writes in his posthumous 1968 book, Gemini, that the realization of Project Mercury's end and the unlikelihood of his having another flight in that program Prompted him to focus all his efforts on the upcoming Gemini program. The Gemini program was managed by the Manned Space Center, Houston, Texas, now known as the Johnson Spacecraft Center, under direction of the Office of Manned Space Flight, NASA Headquarters, Washington, D.C. Dr. George E. Mueller, Associate Minister of NASA for Manned Spaceflight, served as the Acting Director of Gemini Program. William C. Snyder, Deputy Director of Manned Spaceflight for Mission Operations, served as Mission Director on all Gemini flights, beginning with Gemini 6A. Unterwent was a McDonald engineer who supervised launch preparations for both the Mercury and Gemini programs and would go on to do the same with the Apollo program launched crews. His team was responsible for completion of complex pad closeout procedures just prior to the spacecraft launch, and he was the last person the astronauts would see prior to closing the hatch. The astronauts appreciated his taking absolute authority over and responsibility for the condition of the spacecraft and developed a good-humored rapport with him. For the spacecraft itself, NASA selected McDonald Aircraft, which had been the prime contractor for the Project Mercury capsule, in 1961 to build the Gemini capsule, the first of which was delivered in 1963. The spacecraft was 18 feet 5 inches long, or 5.6 meters, and 10 feet wide, or 3 meters wide, with a launch weight varying from 7,100 to 8,300 pounds, or 3,200 to 3,800 kilograms. The major difference between Gemini and Mercury spacecraft was that all Mercury systems, other than the re-entry rockets, were situated within the capsule, most of which were accessed through the astronaut's hatchway, while Gemini housed its power, propulsion, and life support systems in a detachable adapter module located behind the re-entry module the crew capsule shaped like an enlarged version of the Mercury capsule. Many components in the capsule itself were rechargeable and reachable through their own small access doors. Unlike Mercury, Gemini used completely solid-state electronics, and its modular design made it very easy to repair. Gemini's emergency launch escape system did not use an escape tower powered by a solid flu- fuel rocket, but instead used aircraft style ejection seats. The tower was heavy and complicated, and NASA engineers reasoned that they could do away with it, as the Titan II's hypergolic propellants would burn immediately on contact. A heavy and complicated, and Titan II booster explosion, had a smaller blast effect and flame than on the cryogenically fueled Atlas and Saturn. Ejector seats were sufficient to separate the astronauts from malfunctioning launch vehicles. At higher altitudes, where the ejection seats could not be used, the astronauts would return inside the spacecraft, which would separate from the launch vehicle. Gemini was the first astronaut-carrying spacecraft to include an onboard computer, the Gemini Guidance Computer, to facilitate management and control of mission maneuvers. Unlike Mercury, the Gemini used in-flight radar and artificial horizon, devices similar to those used in the aviation industry. Believe it or not, the original intention for Gemini was to land on solid ground instead of at sea, using what's called a Rogallo wing rather than a parachute, with the crew seated upright controlling the forward motion of the craft. To facilitate this, the airfoil did not attach to the nose of the aircraft, but to an additional attachment point for balance near the heat shield. This cord was covered by a strip of metal which ran between the two twin hatches. This design was ultimately dropped. Parachutes were used to make a sea landing, as in Mercury. The capsule was suspended at an angle closer to horizontal so that the side of the heat shield contacted the water first. This eliminated the need for the landing bag cushion, as used in mercury capsules. So basically, the Gemini was going to come down with what looks like a hang glider attached to the top of it. I think they're happy that they chose the parachute instead. The Gemini was unique that it had an equipment module that was not found in the Mercury capsule. Gemini was equipped with an Orbit, Attitude, and Maneuvering System, OAMS, which contains 16 thrusters, which provide translation, control in all three perpendicular axes, forward, backward, left, right, up, And down. In addition to attitude control, pitch, yaw, and roll angle orientation, as in the Mercury, translation controlled allowed changing orbital inclination and altitude necessary to perform space rendezvous with other craft and docking with the Angia target vehicle also also known as the ATV with its own rocket engine which could be used to perform larger orbit changes early short duration missions had their electrical power supplied by batteries later endurance missions used the first fuel cells in manned spacecraft Gemini was, in some regards, more advanced than Apollo because the Gemini program began almost a year earlier. It became known as a Spilot spacecraft due to its assortment of jet fighter-like features, in no small part due to Gus Grissom's influence over the design. And it was at this point where the American manned space program clearly began showing its superiority over that of the Soviet Union with long-duration flight, rendezvous, and extra-vehicle capability. The Soviet Union during this period was developing the Soyuz spacecraft, intended to take cosmonauts to the moon, but political and technical problems began to get in the way Leading to the ultimate end of their manned lunar program. Project Gemini had its own launch vehicle, the Titan II, which debuted in 1962 as the Air Force's second generation ICBM to replace the Atlas. By using hypergolic fuels, it could be stored for long periods of time and be easily ready for launch, in addition to being a simpler design with fewer components. The only caveat being that the propellant mix, nitrogen, tetroxide, and hydrazine, was extremely toxic compared to the Atlas's liquid oxygen. However, The Titan had considerable difficulty being man-rated due to early problems with pogo oscillation. Pogo oscillation is like a breathing in and out of the fuel into the engine. And if not fixed, it could break the launch vehicle apart on liftoff. The Titan II rocket that carried the Gemini spacecraft was guided by its own separate ASC-15 Guidance Computer. The Gemini Guidance Computer, sometimes called the Gemini Spacecraft Onboard Computer, was very similar to the Saturn Launch Vehicle Digital Computer. The Gemini Guidance computer weighed 59 pounds, or 27 kilograms. The core memory had 4,096 addresses, each containing a 39-bit word composed of three 13-bit syllables. All generic data was 26-bit 2s of topple-bit integers, sometimes used as fixed-point numbers, either stored in the first two syllables of a word or in the accumulator. Instructions, always four-bit operational and nine bits of operand, could go in any syllable. It had very little computing power by today's standards. Crew selection. Crew selection was very important. Deke Slayton, as director of flight crew operations, had the main role in choice of crews for the Gemini program. With Gemini, it became a procedure that each flight had a primary crew and a backup crew and that the backup crew would rotate to primary crew status three flights later. Slayton also intended for first choice of mission commands to be given to the four remaining active astronauts of the Mercury 7, Alan Shepard, Gus Gripsom, Scott Cooper, and Wally Sherrara. You'll recall that John Glenn had retired from NASA in January 1964, and Scott Carpenter, who was blamed by some in NASA management for the problematic reentry of Aurora 7, was on leave to participate in the Navy's Sea Lab project and was grounded from flight in July 1964 due to an arm injury sustained in a motorbike accident. Deke Slayton himself continued to be grounded due to a heart problem. In late 1963, Slayton selected Shepard and Stafford for Gemini 3, McDivitt and White for Gemini 4, and Sharara and Young for Gemini 5, which was to be the first Agena rendezvous vision. The backup crew for Gemini 3 was Grissom and Borman, who were also slated for Gemini 6 to be the first long-duration mission. Finally, Pete Conrad and Jim Lovell were assigned as backup crew for Gemini 4. Delays in the production of the Agenia target vehicle caused the first rearrangement of crew rotation. The Sharara and Young mission was bumped to Gemini 6, and they now were the backup crew for Shepard and Stafford. Grissom and Borman now had their long-duration mission assigned to Gemini 5. The second rearrangement occurred when astronaut Alan Shepard developed Meniere's disease, an inner ear problem. Grissom was then moved to command Gemini 3. Slayton felt that Young was better a better personality match with Grissom and switched Stafford and Young. Finally, Slayton tapped Cooper to command the long-duration Gemini 5. Again, for reasons of compatibility, he moved Pete Conrad from backup commander of Gemini 4 to pilot of Gemini 5, and Frank Borman to backup commander of Gemini 4. Finally, he assigned Neil Armstrong and Elliot C to be the backup crew for Gemini 5. The third rearrangement of crew assignment occurred when Slayton felt that C wasn't up to the physical demands of the extra vehicle activity, or EVA, that was scheduled to be on Gemini 8. Here assigned, reassigned, Elliot C. to be the prime commander of Gemini 9 and put Scott as pilot of Gemini 8 and Charles Bassett as the pilot of Gemini 9. The fourth and final rearrangement of the Gemini crew assignment occurred after the deaths of Elliot C. and Charles Bassett when their trainer jet crashed coincidentally into a McDonnell Douglas building which held their Gemini 9 capsule in St. Louis. The backup crew of Stafford and Cernan was then moved up to the new prime crew of the redesignated Gemini 9A. Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin were moved from being the backup crew of Gemini 10 to the backup crew of Gemini 9. This cleared the way through the crew rotation, Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin to be the prime crew of Gemini 12. Along with the deaths of Grissom, White, and Roger Chaffee in the fire of Apollo 1, the f- this final arrangement helped determine the makeup of the first seven Apollo crews, who would be in position for a chance to be the first to walk on the moon. Between 1964 and 1965, two Gemini missions were flown without crews to test out systems and the heat shield. These were followed by 10 flights with crews in 1965 and 1966. All were launched by Titan II launch vehicles. Some highlights from the Gemini program include Edward White becoming the first American to make an extravehicular activity, EVA or spacewalk, on June 3, 1965, during Gemini 4. Gemini 5 demonstrated the eight-day endurance necessary for an Apollo lunar mission with the first use of fuel cells to generate its electrical power. Gemini 6A and 7 accomplished the first space rendezvous in December 1965 and Gemini 7 set a 14-day endurance record. Gemini 8 achieved the first space docking with an unmanned Agena target vehicle. Gemini 11 set a manned Earth orbital altitude record of 739 nautical miles, or 1,369 kilometers on September 1966, using the propulsion system of its Agena target vehicle. This record still stands today. Buzz Aldrin on Gemini 12 became the first space traveler to prove that useful work could be done outside the spacecraft without life-threatening exhaustion. A little interesting bit of trivia is rendezvous in orbit is not a straightforward manner. Getting the two spacecraft to touch each other is very difficult, and here's why. Should a spacecraft increase its speed to catch up with the front spacecraft, the result would be that it's going to a higher and slower orbit and the distance thereby increases, which is completely opposite of what you think would happen. The correct procedure would actually be to slow down and go to a lower orbit first, and then later increase speed, and go into the same orbit as the other. To practice these maneuvers, special rendezvous and docking simulators were built for the astronauts. The Gemini Titan II launch vehicle was adapted by NASA from the U.S. Air Force, Titan II ICBM. Similarly, the Mercury Atlas launch vehicle had been adapted from the U.S. Air Force Atlas missile. The Gemini Titan II rockets were assigned Air Force serial numbers, which were painted in four places on each Titan II, on opposite sides of each of the first and second stages. U.S. Air Force crews maintained Launch Complex 19 and launched all the Gemini Titan II launch vehicles. Data and experience operating the Titans was of value both to the U.S. Air Force and to NASA. The U.S. Air Force serial numbers assigned to the Gemini Titan launch vehicles are interesting. Fifteen Titan IIs were ordered in 1962, so the serial numbers are 62-12-XXX, but only 12-XXX is painted on the Titan II. Order for the last three of the 15 launch vehicles were canceled on July 30, 1964, and they were never built. Their serial numbers, however, were still assigned to them. How much did the Gemini program cost? In January 1969, NASA prepared for the U.S. Congress an estimate for the cost of Project Mercury. Gemini, and Apollo. This estimates gives the cost of the Project Gemini at $1.2834 billion, broken down into $797 million for the spacecraft, $409 million for the launch vehicles, and $76 million for support. Space Review magazine estimated in 2010 The cost of Gemini from 1962 to 1967 as $1.3 billion. In 1967, inflation-adjusted dollars. Not bad. They got it right on the nose. Now, here's a part of the Gemini program you probably have never heard of. And if you have heard of it, consider yourself an expert on Gemini. There is a thing called Advanced Gemini. Advanced Gemini is a number of proposals that would have extended the Gemini program by the addition of various missions, including manned low Earth orbit, circumlunar and lunar landing missions, Gemini was the second manned spacecraft program operated by NASA and consisted of the two-seat spacecraft capable of maneuvering in orbit, docking with unmanned spacecraft such as the Agena target vehicles, and allowing the crew to perform the tethered extravehicular activities. So this was a pretty versatile spacecraft for its day. So, a range of applications were considered for advanced Gemini missions, including military flights, space station, crew and logistics delivery, and lunar flights. The lunar proposals ranged from reusing the docking system, developed for the Agena target vehicle on a more powerful upper stages, such as the Centaur, which could then propel the spacecraft to the moon, two complete modifications of the Gemini to enable it to land on the lunar surface. Wow. Could you imagine that? Its application would have ranged from manned lunar flybys before Apollo was ready to providing emergency shelters or rescue for stranded Apollo crews or even replacing the Apollo program. Some of the advanced Gemini proposals used off-the-shelf Gemini spacecraft unmodified from the original program, while others featured modifications to allow the spacecraft to carry more crew, dock with space stations, visit the moon, and perform other mission objectives. Other modifications considered included the addition of wings or a parasail to the spacecraft in order to enable it to make a horizontal landing. Many other applications were envisioned for the Gemini spacecraft at various stages before, during, and after the two years in which it was used by NASA for manned spaceflight. That's right. Gemini was only used for two years. But what an amazing two years it was. All those, none of these proposals ever made it into operation. Many were considered seriously, and in some cases, flight hardware was constructed prior to cancellation. In the case of the Manned Orbital Laboratory, a Gemini spacecraft was launched on a suborbital demonstration flight in support of the program. In some cases, technology developed by Advanced Gemini Program had been reintegrated into other programs, such as components from the Titan 3M launch vehicle, which was to have launched the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, being used to upgrade other Titan rockets. Here's where it gets really crazy. The United States Air Force intended to use the Gemini spacecraft to transport astronauts to its proposed space stations, the Manned Orbital Development System, and later the Manned Orbital Laboratory. These stations would have been launched by Titan 3M rockets with a Gemini spacecraft on top, eliminating the need for rendezvous and docking maneuvers. For this purpose, several modifications were made to the Gemini capsule, including the installation of a hatch in the heat shield to allow access to the space station. I don't know how safe I would have felt with that. In order to give its astronauts experience before these programs started, the Blue Gemini program was proposed, which would have seen United States Air Force astronauts fly on NASA missions in order to practice various techniques required for their own missions. This would have first seen cooperative missions between NASA and the Air Force, with two missions flying with crews composed of one astronaut from NASA and one astronaut from the Air Force, followed by two missions with all Air Force crews, but performing missions for NASA. After these flights, the U.S. Air Force would have flown a number of missions on its own. Finally, it would have flown a two-man Agena rendezvous and docking mission, followed by two one-man scientific or technologically research missions, other proposed missions including tests of the Astronaut Mobility Unit, which was designed to assist with EVAs, inertial navigation systems, and flying a radar imaging system. Manned Orbiting Laboratories Launches would have been conducted from Launch Complex 40 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station and Space Launch Complex 6 at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. In 1966, a test flight was launched from LC 40 using a Titan 3C. It consisted of the Gemini B spacecraft built from the spacecraft used for the Gemini 2 test flight, a top a OPS 0855, a boilerplate manned operating laboratory space station. Gemini B was released on a suborbital trajectory and descended to Earth to test modifications made to the heat shield and ensure the access hatch would not affect its performance. OPS 0855 continued on into orbit. Early manned operating laboratory stations would have only been manned by a single crew, launched with the station. Later stations would have been designed to be resupplied and support multiple crews, developed by additional Gemini spacecraft, or its derivatives. The mobile program was canceled on June 10, 1969, in favor of unmanned reconnaissance satellites. Subsystems systems developed for the program were later used on unmanned missions, while the spacesuits which were under development were transferred to NASA The Titan-3M rocket, which was to launch the manned operating laboratory, never flew. However, some of the upgrades that were built into it were later used to upgrade other Titan rockets. The stretched first and second stages became the Titan-34, which was used as the core of some later Titan-3B flights and on the Titan-34D. The seven-segment solid rocket boosters were later introduced on the Titan four a Several Gemini ferry spacecrafts were proposed to provide transportation of crews and cargoes to NASA and Air Force space stations in low Earth orbit. NASA contracted McDonnell Douglas to conduct a study into what modifications would be needed to allow the Gemini spacecraft to support this. Three spacecraft were envisioned a manned spacecraft to transport crew to the stations, a manned spacecraft with a cargo module for both crew and cargo delivery and a dedicated unmanned spacecraft to resupply the station every three to four months. The studies looked at minimizing required modifications to the Gemini spacecraft. Three docking methods were considered. The first was use of existing docking systems on the Gemini-Agena missions. This would have allowed the mission to accomplish with little modification to the Gemini spacecraft needed. However, crew transfers could only have been accomplished by means of extravehicular activity, or EVA. In other words, the crew members would have to suit up, get out of the Gemini, fly over to the, mobile, the manned op- orbiting laboratory, and climb in. Changes that would have been required, including strengthening the nose, installing two solid rockets to be used for a separation burn, adding the necessary equipment to perform the transfer EVA, and providing provisions for flight to and from the station. The number of retro rockets would have been increased from four to six. A second method would have been to have seen the spacecraft dock in the same way but after docking the spacecraft would be swung around and attached to the side of the space station. A tunnel would then have been placed over the Gemini's hatches allowing the crew to transfer to the station without performing an EVA. Some modifications of the hatches would have been required. The final proposed docking method was to use a port mounted on the rear of the equipment module, which would have allowed the crew to transfer directly between the spacecraft and the space station through a docking port. A modified version of the spacecraft was proposed, which would have included a cargo module attached to the back of a modified equipment module. The spacecraft would have approached the station and docked backwards using a port on the rear of the cargo modules. If one of the forward docking configurations had been used for the Gemini itself, the docking would have been controlled remotely from the station, with the Gemini then separating from the cargo module and flying around the station to dock normally on a different port. The rear docking Gemini would have simply remained attached to the cargo module with the crew boarding the station through it. Its docking would have been controlled by its own crew from a station at the back of the cargo module. Two Gemini-derived spacecraft were considered for unmanned resupply flights. The first of these would have involved a Gemini spacecraft with all the systems for manned flight, re-entry, and landing removed. The spacecraft would have docked using a port at the front of the spacecraft, Cargo would have been transferred through the nose of the spacecraft where the re-entry attitude control systems was located on the manned spacecraft. The spacecraft was equipped with a liquid propellant engine to perform rendezvous and to reboost the space station. The other proposal was for a new spacecraft to be built for unmanned missions but using as many Gemini systems as possible it would have had a higher cargo capacity than the stripped-down version of the Gemini spacecraft. Crew-only cargo supply missions would have been launched aboard a Titan II, and the Saturn I or Saturn I-B would have been used for the combined crew cargo spacecraft because the increased power of the Saturn I the Gemini spacecraft's ejection seats would not have been able to propel the crew far enough in the event of explosion. So a launch power was proposed based on the one used on the Mercury spacecraft. The Titan II was also considered to launch the heavier spacecraft. So, with that all said, none of this ever happened because it only stayed in the proposal stage. We went on to Apollo and raced to the